the beginning of the good news of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. As it is written in the prophet Isaiah, See, I am sending my messenger ahead of you, who will prepare your way. The voice of the one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. John the baptizer appeared in the wilderness, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And people from the whole Judean countryside and all the people of Jerusalem were going out to him and were baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now John was clothed with camel's hair, with a leather belt around his waist, and he ate locust and wild honey. He proclaimed, The one who is more powerful than I is coming after me. I am not worthy to stoop down and untie the thong of his sandals. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. I should be seated. So John the Baptist is the voice of Advent. And I have to say, though, he is probably not my first choice as someone I would invite to come to get us in the mood for Christmas. He doesn't dress like regular folks. He can be rather direct in his words towards people. And if you're a friend of mine on Facebook, you may have seen a meme that I absolutely love. And actually, I think Kyle can put that up for you this morning. Yeah, there it is. I love it. It says, Happy Advent, you brood of vipers. Now, I love this because it makes me laugh every year. It is a, it's a meme that reminds me of who John the Baptist was and what he was like. And he could be rather coarse at times in the scriptures. Yet... Those who gave us the common lectionary have given us a lot of John these first weeks of Advent. And because he is one among a long line of prophets who came to prepare the God's people for God's coming into the human condition. And John, though, seemed quite effective in this role. Say what you want about him. Mark's gospel, the first written gospel, begins with John drawing people from their normal places drawing them out of the routines to go and listen to him talk about preparing themselves for God's coming and to set things right again. He appears in a wild place. The wilderness likely signified that this was an, a typically uninhabited location. It was an area that was likely a dusty, rocky hillside where people only like shepherds and sheep would wander through every so often. This place was probably, on any other day, silent. But now it's filled with the sounds of shuffling feet and murmuring voices and people from the city, people from the countryside, people from the suburban kind of areas. They've all come to this same wild spot to hear John speak. So this wild place becomes temporarily a community of spiritual nomads. Now to say they're nomadic is, is greatly romanticizing this they went back to their homes of course but he has drawn out the people of God in a nomadic way but maybe that harkened back to the early days of Israel with good news about God arriving and the wilderness was John's place too now, I don't mean to say that this was where John lived where people gathered but he was a man of the wilderness 
Now, Mark's gospel, if you read it through, it's not written with a lot of fluff. There's no extra words, usually. He writes it in a time of war, or perhaps following a war in Jerusalem. The Jewish wars against Rome, and Jerusalem was either in the process of falling, or it had already fallen to Rome as a result. And Mark reads more like a travel journey. It reads like someone on the move. There is very little prose and literature to his writings, but... Because of John, he felt it was worth to take a little extra time and to tell us what he looked like and what he acted like. And he says, well, he was a man who clothed himself with camel's hair, a leather belt around his waist. He ate locust and wild honey. Well, he was a different kind of fellow. He was from an area called Qumran, most likely, near the Dead Sea. And it's believed that he was part of a very pious Jewish community. It's a place where the Dead Sea Scrolls were found, if you're familiar with those. And it too was a wild place, set apart from traditional communities in John's day. And likely that's where he developed his emphasis on baptism. All to say this, John stuck out in the crowd. But Mark thought that his ideas were wildly attractive and he had an important message to share. Attractive enough that people from every walk made an effort to meet him at a most inconvenient place. Why here? What was it about this? And what was it about John that drew such an, a diverse kind of people to see him? What drew them out of their places of homes and communities that were so familiar to them? And who were they, by the way? It does tell us that they journeyed out to his way. And most assuredly, they were a diverse group of people. There were almost certainly Jews and Gentiles. There were those who never crossed paths on any given day and probably meant not to cross each other's paths who were here. Because Rome kept a watchful eye on those who might be potential troublemakers, I would imagine someone in the crowd was going to report back to the authorities what was going on, being sure someone wasn't making trouble. Maybe there were a few people to report back to Herod as well. We know that his rage will burn hot and violent towards John very soon. I bet a few Pharisees and scribes are around the religious order, the establishment, if you will. They were usually the ones who called God's people together. Who is this guy? What's he about? Probably re religious zealots were on hand and maybe those who had never taken a side on anything. And what was the message that drew this crowd? He drew them together with a consistent message that the wait for God's return is about to end. It's over. And as a result, they needed to make a way for his coming through repentance and confession. Now, some of them may have recalled some 30 years before that they'd heard wild rumors from local shepherds about this child that was born. Someone had known of the Magi coming many years before as well, these strangers asking about this future king and a few people called perhaps that Jesus' family had to flee to Egypt at one point because of the king's jealous violence. Now Mark doesn't have time today to trace us back and to tell all those details with us, but those things were there too. But we do have a very familiar and similar story here, a message. Not to announce Jesus' birth, but to announce that his ministry decades later is about to begin. Now let's be honest. 
to our ears these words about confession and repentance, well, that doesn't exactly ream of, scream of upbeat news, does it? How many of us have Christmas ornaments in our yard or decorations that use the word repent or confession? I am determined one day to take that meme that I have and put it on a sign and put that out in my front yard. And happy Advent, you brood of vipers. In fact, you may drive by my house tonight and see that now as I think about it. Do we really want to include John into our Christmas preparations? Do we really want to talk about repentance and confession? Is that really part of our Christmas herald? John's that guy in the Christmas party who stands up and says, If you all want the Lord to come back, you're going to have to pay attention to what's wrong with you and get yourselves together first. That's John. Even so, isn't it often true that what we think of as bad news turns out to be good news? Look again the very first words that Mark uses for his Gospels. He says in the very opening words that this is the beginning of the good news. Some believe or speculate that maybe this was even the title of what he wrote. We're in that crowd today with John preaching repentance and confession. We're standing among the many from all times and places with the saints even intentionally taking a step back from the things that we're familiar, familiar with and comfortable with to prepare for Christ's coming yet again. Now, I don't mean we have to go to some wilderness remote place to gather, although we're literally gathered remotely, aren't we? We're in a very different kind of place, a wild place even. We're in that crowd today, maybe more than ever. We know that Jesus was born we know much about his ministry, yet we take a few weeks out of the year to begin looking for our blind spots, to begin looking for things about ourselves that keep us from seeing or being what we might need to be individually and communally. The great preacher and writer Frederick Buechner often articulated the importance of taking a step back and looking at yourself. He often said things like, listen to your life. See it for the fathomless mystery that it is. In the boredom and pain of it, no less than the excitement and gladness. Touch, taste, smell your way to the holy and the hidden heart of it all. Because in the last analysis of all moments, they are all key. And life itself is grace. And let's be honest about such a thing, though. This kind of work, it's hard work. When we really listen to our lives and ways, we will all find some part of us that, well, I don't or we don't like very much. Have you ever had that moment when that thing or that experience, that thing you did that one time a long time ago, kind of comes back and kicks you in the emotional shin or gut? I have, I do, and I will again. And if you have, John the Baptist is talking to you and me. And it is good news. It's not bad news. You see, if we listen to John the Baptist, and if we honestly listen to our lives as Beaconer encourages, and if we have the courage to stick around long enough to really face who we are and can be with good friends, God's help, and the Holy Spirit, 
we will come out better on the other side of Advent. If we will, as Beekner wrote, here and there, even in our world, and now and then, even in ourselves, we catch glimpses of a new creation, which fleeting as these glimpses are apt to be, give us hope both for this life and for whatever life may await us in the future. This is the good news of the Gospels. And it is the reason we observe such a thing as Advent. It's our tradition to take time and to take that step back and look at all the wonderful and the not-so-wonderful parts of who we can be and then say to the whole world, God is about to show up and make all things new again, including me. So, are you ready to take a step back? Are you ready to step away from things as they are? And are you ready to look at your lives individually and together and make room for a new creation? Are you ready for something new in you and between us and us all? Can you imagine something about yourself that if you face it, you might become better as a result of it? If you can, then read the rest of Mark's story because the rest of the story says that it is grace and forgiveness and mercy and justice and love and healing. That is what's coming. It reveals that nothing, not even death itself, can overcome us. Yet the good news, it will not just fall in our laps. It will not come falling out of the sky for us to pick up off the ground. We must participate in this work. We must step back in order to step in, you might say. Taking a courageous look at how things are and then dig deep into the wealth of grace and knowledge that God gives us and to be changed. The Reverend Dr. Russell Levinson tells a great story about what it looks like to take a step back in order to step a little deeper. One afternoon, the writer William Boggs and his family were learning a valuable lesson about life. He was driving on a hot Carolina afternoon when he passed an orchard called You Pick Peaches. He writes, I doubt any bargain would be sufficiently attractive for me to get out of my air-conditioned car to step into a steamy afternoon and to pick fruit. But we pulled over nonetheless, paid our money, selected a basket, and began to fill it with fresh, ripe South Carolina peaches. As we set off in the orchard, he writes, an old fellow, as wrinkled as a peach pit himself, was tending to the place and said, if you want the best fruit, go deeper into the orchard. The peaches on the fringes are all picked over. So we walked a little way and we figured we'd gone far enough we set the basket down, and, but the old man hollered, Hey, go deeper. So we picked up the basket again, and we walked a little further in, and surely we thought we had gone far enough now. And the man said, No, go even deeper. The best fruit's further in. And once more, Boggs and his family picked up their basket, and they walked a little further, thinking, Surely we're deep enough now into the orchard. And finally the man said, Nope, go on. Go deeper. And then he writes, and so we did. Right in the midst of the orchard, we found he was right. The finest, plumpest peaches were untouched, and they had been waiting for us. Friends, there are parts of us all that are just waiting to be touched by God's grace and mercy. And today, we're invited to step back and step a little deeper with God to trust that we can always go a little deeper to encounter God's goodness. 
As one person writes, we who love God to deliver us from our enemies must first examine ourselves to see whether we're fit to stand in front of our Creator. So what change have you been waiting for, friends, in you, in the world? Do you see it? Can you see what life might look like once that change takes place? If you can, today's promise waits for you. But only if you're willing to dig a little deeper, to go a little further in the orchard of God's loving grace. It's a final thought. I wonder that day when all those folks who would come to hear John preach and be baptized by him, those folks who many would meet Jesus in the days ahead, I wonder what they were thinking when they went home that day. Had there been already a sense of change in them even before encountering Christ? I wonder, was the rich young man there? The one that asked, Jesus, what more do I need to do to enter the kingdom? And Jesus says, you've got to give it all away. How many people were there that were eventually healed by Jesus, who went home limping or in aid, having someone help them walk home? Maybe they were, they were in that crowd too. What about the woman who was about to be stoned to death or the Samaritan woman? Was that the day that John planted the idea in their minds that they too could be part of God's community? How many tax collectors were there? Was Matthew there? I don't know. Maybe they all went home considering what they were going to need to live more justly. What about you and me? What change do you walk away with today? Prepare the way of the Lord. Make his path straight. Thanks be to God. Amen.